Hey, this morning, I'm going to share with you a sermon out of the book of, uh, the book of Judges. And in doing so, we're going to look at the life of one of the heroes of the faith, a man named Samson. But prior to doing so, it's important for me to help establish the historical context in which this book is written so that you can understand the times and the seasons that Samson was raised up in. And you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. When I read the Bible, I am not just convinced of its historicity. I am convinced that people are still the same way today as they were back then. We deal with the same problems, the same sin, the same issues. Sure, the cities have changed. The people have changed. The culture has changed. But people still deal with the same stuff today that they have dealt with since the beginning of time. But the better news is that you've got the same God who is working on your behalf. And I believe that out of the book of Judges today, there's some real principles that if you and I would have ears to hear and eyes to see that we could apply to our life in such a way that we would continue to be transformed into his image and into his likeness. Joshua, who leads God's children across the Jordan River into the promised land, he dies at the age of 110. And after the death of Joshua, the nation enters into a 450 year time period where Israel is ruled by judges. Now God raised up judges to function as spiritual, militaristic, and political leaders to vanquish the enemies of Israel and to keep them on the straight and narrow. Judges like Deborah, judges like Gideon, and judges like Samson. And here is the reason why. It comes from Judges 21 and in verse 25 where the Bible says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. So everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Sounds like the day in which we live now. Everyone does what is right in their own eyes. <laughs> Hear me, friend. When truth becomes a subjective entity that each individual determines for themselves. Civilizations descend into chaos and spirituality corrodes into syncretism. Truth is not manufactured by the individual. No, truth is not created by political correctness. No, truth is not an object left to be defined by the whims of culture. Truth is a person and his name is Jesus. And only he has the sovereign authority to establish what is right, what is good, what is lovely, and what is godly. Every identity must bow to the truth of Jesus. Every opinion must bow to the truth of Jesus. Every preference, every orientation, every religious idea, friend, it simply must bow to the truth of Jesus. No, Jesus doesn't just have truth. He is truth. And that changes everything. Jesus is what God has to say. He is the one who testifies of the Father. He didn't just share principles on how to live a better life. He came to call the world into account. Friend, it is a time of choosing. Either you will function as the individual subjective source of authority and truth in your life, 
or you will live a life submitted to the king who he alone has the right to dictate your past, your present, and your future. See, here's the problem. A lot of people love Jesus as a savior, but they despise him as their Lord. Buddha said, I am a seeker of truth. Muhammad said, I am a prophet of truth, but only Jesus proclaimed, I am the truth. <laughs> and in John 18, as Jesus stands before Pontius Pilate prior to his execution, Pilate says, you're a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king, but in fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. And everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And Pilate responds, what is truth? Is this not the moment we live in today? What is truth? <laughs> and here's the problem. When the world comes asking the church what is truth, we better find ourselves unashamed to still declare that Jesus is the way, the truth, the life, and no man comes to the Father except by him. Now watch what G.K. Chesterton, the great English theologian of the 20th century once said, we shall soon be in a world in which a man will be hunted down for saying that two plus two equals four, in which people will persecute the heresy of calling a triangle a three-sided figure and hang a man for asserting that the grass is green. The great march of mental destruction will go on until one day everything will be denied. Friend, if you lose the battle for truth, it doesn't matter what other battles you win because you have already lost the war. Truth is not owned by us, it is stewarded by us. We are not editors of the gospel, we are messengers of the gospel. See, our culture has more information than ever before and yet we are still starving for what is true. And can I tell you, nothing scares a pagan culture more than a church who is unafraid to boldly proclaim that there is in fact a righteous standard, there is in fact a sovereign truth. No, it does not originate from within us. It is only found in the recognition of Christ's lordship over us. And can I just tell you today, we don't make Jesus Lord, we recognize his lordship, and in doing so, we submit our lives. God doesn't need our help in making him Lord. He was Lord before, he is Lord now, and he'll be Lord after. He is Lord before the worlds were framed, he'll be Lord after the world is gone. He is Lord over all, and there is not one sphere, one scenario, one circumstance, or one place that you will ever walk into in which Jesus is not already Lord. There's a lot of places that don't recognize him as Lord. But our lack of recognition does not give the Lord an identity crisis, for he is already the high king of glory. I'm reminded of what the prophet Amos says in the book that bears his name, Amos 3 and 3. He asks this question, how can two walk together unless they agree? And I think you could say that verse like this, how can we be unified unless we first have truth? 
Our message is not unity at all cost. It is truth at all cost. For where you have truth, you will forge unity. But it is the order of operations that matters. Do you know that today all sorts of people are unified around all sorts of terrible ideas? Jim Jones had unity amongst his cult in Jonestown. 900 people drank Kool-Aid laced with cyanide and ended up dead. The Flat Earth Society has unified people all around the globe around the idea that the earth is flat. The people who built the Tower of Babel were unified around the idea that they could reach God with their own human efforts. Never underestimate the stupidity of a confused, unified people in large numbers. And when a society chooses unity over truth, chaos, confusion, and brokenness is the outcome. See, friend, how I feel about truth doesn't have permission to change the nature of what is actually true in my life. You may not feel like you are the right gender. You may not feel as if you're attracted to the right person. You may not feel like you're born again, feel like you're forgiven, feel like your life is valuable, but here is the truth. Jesus paid for your sin. Jesus loves you more than you could ever imagine. Jesus can redeem any situation and it is only his truth that can set you free. The answer to my damaged perspective is found in an encounter with Christ's truth. And isn't this the great news of the gospel? I am not what I feel. I am not what I've done. I am not my mistakes. I am not my temptations. I am not my proclivities. Instead, I am what Jesus says I am. It is never love to affirm a lie in order to not offend the liar. It is truth that sets men free. It is truth that keeps them free. And it is truth that binds us together for the sake of kingdom advancement. Unity is the preference, but truth is non-negotiable. See, this is the time period that the nation of Israel was living in. Eerily similar to the time in which we live today. And in the midst of it, watch what the scriptures record. In Judges 14 and 4, the Lord was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines. For at that time, they were ruling over Israel. In Judges 14, God raised up a man named Samson. God was seeking an occasion, so he found a man. See, the older I get, the more that I think about the election and the calling of God in this manner. God was seeking an occasion, so he found a man or a woman who he could display his power and his splendor through. See, God had a plan. It was for Israel to conquer the Philistines. God had a plan. It was for Israel to fully possess the promised land. God had a plan, but that plan in and of itself wasn't enough. He sought a person by which his plan could be accomplished. So God raised up Samson. And Samson judges Israel for 20 years. And in Judges 16, it tells us the story 
of our good friend, Samson. Afterward, it happened that he loved a woman whose name was Delilah. <laughs> and the lords of the Philistines came to her and said to her, entice him. Find out what his great strength lies and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him and afflict him. And every one of us will give you 1,100 pieces of silver. It won't be the first time or the last time someone is betrayed for a piece of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, please tell me where your great strength lies and with what you may be bound to afflict you. Now they say love makes you do strange things, but this has to take the cake. <laughs> but can I tell you, Samson's downfall begins when he makes the decision to love Delilah more than he loves the Lord. Anything, hear me friend, anything, hear me friend, anything you love in your life more than God is an idol that must be destroyed else it will sap your strength and turn into your affliction. Watch the words of Jesus from Matthew 10. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. It's not that Christ is opposed to the love that we offer each other. But when that love is not properly ordered, it becomes disordered. And a disordered life cannot be blessed. A disordered life will lead you to affliction. A disordered life will lead you to bondage. It comes wrapped in what appears to be good. But when you love the creation more than the creator, you will sacrifice truth for a false semblance of unity and lead your sphere of influence to a place of bondage. Do you know that idols rarely present themselves as such? See, we think of idols as golden statues formed in the image of a pagan deity. But the idols that afflict us most are the ones that come wrapped in the good intentions of life's busyness. How about the idols of misplaced affection? How about the idols of a poorly prioritized life? How about the idols of consumerism? How about the idols of popularity and influence? How about the idols of money and wealth? How about the idols of performance and accomplishment? See, Hinduism has 330 million gods, but I would say in the West, we have just as many. And any value that takes precedence over Christ will ultimately lead to your downfall for God will not share the throat of your heart with another. I'm sure Delilah was pretty. I'm sure she made Samson feel less lonely. I'm sure the company was nice. I'm sure the sexual chemistry was great. I'm sure he thought anything is better than being single. I'm sure he thought, oh, I know she ain't a strong believer, but I can convince her. I'm sure he thought, oh, I know she ain't right with God, but I can change her. Aren't we experts at justifying our own stupidity? Here's the truth. You can't change Delilah, but Delilah will change you. And until you deal with the pain that causes you to go from one bad relationship to the next, no amount of sexual attraction or chemistry will heal the void in your heart. Hear me. 
The enemy loves to exploit unhealed areas of pain in your life, turning them into strongholds of trauma. So here's what you may not know about Samson's story. Samson's father sabotaged his first marriage by giving Samson's wife away to his best man. This story reads like an episode of Jerry Springer. It's almost too crazy to believe. But I'll tell you this, the trauma of unhealed relational wounds leads Samson to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, loving the wrong thing, giving his heart to the wrong person. Trauma doesn't heal by itself. Divorce doesn't heal by itself. Abuse doesn't heal by itself. Healing and wholeness is found in the presence of God, surrounded by the people of God, planted in the house of God. Friends, you weren't wounded alone and you can't be healed alone for it is in church that we carry one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. See, when you get hurt by a person, the temptation is to withdraw from that which hurt you in an effort to achieve self-preservation. But woundedness is not healed in isolation. You need a savior, you need a community, and you need his presence. You may have been hurt by church, but there is healing for you in this one. You may have been hurt by a leader, but there is healing for you amongst this leadership team. The enemy wants you to run away so that he can finish the job that he started. Friend, you need a house to call home so your life can come into fullness. Unsubmitted pain, unhealed trauma, undealt with wounds create opportunity for your soul to be diseased. Refuse to give the enemy an inch for there is healing in the house for you today. It's been said before and I think it's true. If you never heal from what hurt you, you'll bleed on people who didn't cut you. Watch verse 16. And it came to pass when Delilah pestered him daily with her words and pressed him so much so that his soul was vexed unto death. Oh, that sounds healthy. It's better to be single than to wish you were. Verse 17, that he told her all of his heart. He said to her, no razor has ever come upon my head because I've been a Nazarite unto God from my mother's womb. If I am shaven, then my strength will leave me. I shall become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah lulled him to sleep on her knees, called for a man and had him shave off to seven locks of his head. And then she began to torment him and his strength left. And she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. So he awoke from his sleep. He said, I will go out as before at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. See, Samson was a Nazarite, meaning that he had made a vow to consecrate himself to God. The three conditions for a Nazarite vow are found in number six. They were to abstain from wine or any fermented drink. They were not to cut their hair. And lastly, they were not to go near a dead body because to do so would make them ceremonially unclean. But hear me today, friend. It was never about the hair. It was about what the hair symbolized. 
an outside representation of an interior condition. It wasn't the hair that made Samson strong. It was the consecration of his heart. And by the time that Samson was captured, it was simply his outside life catching up with his inside life. Oftentimes in ancient cultures, when a prisoner was captured, the invading army would shave their heads as a sign of subservience. The prisoner was losing their previous identity and now everyone could tell that they were owned and operated by a foreign power. I love what Spurgeon said about Judges 16. He made these remarks. In the opinion of some persons, Samson probably looked much improved with his long matted hair gone. He was more presentable, more fit for good society. And so is the case in many churches. The notion is that they are all the better for getting rid of their peculiarities. Friend, you are a peculiar person. You attend a peculiar church led by a peculiar pastor and we've got peculiar convictions by which we abide. Friends, you must resist the temptation to blend into a culture that you were created to stand out in. Watch what the apostle Peter says. 1 Peter 2 and 9. You are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation and you are a peculiar people. Some folks' spiritual strategy seems to be this. I'm gonna blend in so much to the world and the culture around me that no one will ever be able to tell I belong to Christ. And then once I convince my sphere of influence that I'm cool enough, I will spring the gospel on them like a sneak attack. Listen, you will never be cool enough. You will never be tolerant enough. You will never be relevant enough. You will never be moderate enough. And if you lose your consecration in an attempt to blend in, then you have already given up the strength you need to make a difference on the world around you. I was working at the office a few weeks ago. It was a Saturday, nobody else was there. I was typing and all of a sudden in the middle of my prep, I heard a loud knock on the door and I figured it was UPS dropping off some packages and I went to the front door and before I even opened it, I could see the man on the other side and I could just tell that he was upset. So I opened the door and I said, how can I help you? And he said, I'm upset. And I said, I know. <laughs> and God is my witness. He pointed his finger at me and he said, you're odd. and you lead an odd church. And God bless his heart, I think for him, this was maybe the most succinct critique that he could give. And for me, I, I took that as a compliment. I said, you haven't seen nothing yet. I said, we just getting started. Oh, you should show up on a Sunday morning. It's more weird than you think. It's more peculiar than you think. But I think here's the problem. So many churches have gone to sleep on Delilah's lap thinking if I just fit in, if I just submit to the Philistines, if I just never rock the boat, if I just never say what's true, if I just never offend pagans, if I just keep my mouth shut, be nothing, say nothing, do nothing, then somehow, 
somehow, some way, I can be a champion in this environment. But here's the reality. You were born as an original, so don't you dare die as a copy. God has put a peculiar spirit inside of you. Now watch what happens in verse 21. I love this. The Philistines took him. They put out his eyes. They brought him down to Gaza. They bound him with bronze fetters and he became a grinder in the prison. However, however, the story's not done. However, the hair on his head began to grow again. Then Samson called to the Lord, saying, God, remember me. And God, strengthen me. I pray this just once more, that I may with one blow take vengeance on the Philistines for my two eyes. <laughs> and Samson took hold of the two middle pillars which supported the temple. He braced himself against them, one on the right and the other on the left, and, and he pushed with all his might. And the temple fell on the Lord's and all the people who were in it, so that in his death, he killed more than he had in his life. I want you to notice something. The first thing the Philistines did after shaving Samson's head was to pluck out his vision. See, the reason the enemy is after your strength is because once he has your strength, he can distort your vision and alter the direction of your life. And when you lose the ability to see, he will gladly take you in any direction you want. See, your life is headed somewhere. Your values are being discipled by someone. Your mind is being inundated with something. There is no such thing as neutral on this side of heaven. Trust me, you are being developed whether you recognize it or not. The only question to answer is this. Am I headed in the direction of freedom or am I headed in the direction of bondage? <laughs> See, Samson's life story, it reads like a Shakespearean tragedy. And although it is filled with self-induced pain and trauma, I want you to watch how it ends. Maybe my favorite sentence in all of the book of Judges comes from verse 22 of Judges 16, and his hair began to grow. Can I challenge you with something this morning? Everyone loves restoration until it happens to someone they don't like or someone who they think doesn't deserve it. <laughs> and restoration is restoration because it happens to people who don't deserve it. Forgiveness is forgiveness because it happens to people who don't deserve it. Grace and mercy is grace and mercy because it is lavished on people who don't deserve it. We deserved hell. We deserve judgment. And what we got was grace and mercy and restoration and tell what the enemy intended for evil. God by his own spirit is used for our good. 
And I want you to know today, it ain't never too late for your hair to begin to grow again. You serve the God of second chances. You serve the God of restoration. You serve the God who finishes a story better than it started. You are not too far gone for God to use again. I think Samson's hair growing back is is analogous to a believer coming back to their first love. God, I recognize I can't do this on my own. I've tried in my own power, and guess what? I've screwed up in my own power. But if you could forgive me and cleanse me and empower me, I give whatever I have left to the service of your kingdom. And watch Samson's prayer, and here's where I'll end. God, remember me and strengthen me. You got to know this. The older you get, the shorter your prayers become. Because you get the revelation that God is not impressed with the longevity of your dialogue, but instead the sincerity of your dialogue. God, remember me and strengthen me. That word remember is used by David in Psalms 25 after he commits his great sin with Bathsheba. And he cries out to the Lord and he says, God, do not remember the sins of my youth, but instead remember me according to mercy. God doesn't remember us because he's forgotten, but because we've forgotten. When I forgot my vision, God remembered me. When I forgot my destiny, it was God who remembered me. When I forgot my calling and my anointing and my election, I had a God who remembered me. When I forgot my marriage, I had a God who remembered me. When I forgot my church community, I had a God who remembered me. When I forgot the joy of the Lord, which is my strength, I had a God who remembered me. And I want you to know that we are in the middle of a sovereign move of God's spirit in the Northwest and it is reflective of a good father who has remembered his people. You are not forgotten. You have not been left alone. You have not been abandoned. God has remembered his people. Come on, watch you stay standing as we close. That's my prayer for us today. It's not eloquent. It's not intellectual, it's not long. It's God, would you remember me when I've forgotten you? God, would you remember me when I've forgotten who I am? God, would you remember just once more? (laughs) Catherine Coleman used to pray that prayer before her miracle crusades all across the nation, really all across the world. She gathered with her prayer team before the conference would start. And her prayer would be, God, would you remember us once more? (laughs) Yeah, tomorrow isn't promised and 
I know that it feels like we've got all the momentum in the world and God is opening doors that nobody could close. And I'm so thankful just to be a part of this thing. But every time I walk in this building on Sunday morning, I never wanna take it for granted what God is doing. I never wanna grow casual with the anointing of God's spirit. I want my prayer in brokenness and in humility to say, God, would you remember us one more time? If you only do it once more, it'd be enough. But God, one more time. I know we've gotten used to revival and I know we're in a move of God's spirit and we've got salvations and healings and deliverances and campuses and cities and conferences and stadiums and I am overwhelmed with gratitude with the goodness of God. But God, I never want to step foot in this building and just think for a minute that you owe me something I don't deserve. God, here is my prayer. Once more, would you do it again? And the Bible says that in Samson's death, he accomplished more than he had in his previous life. Oh. Friend, it's only when you transcend the death of your own heart, the death of your own sinful condition, the, the death of your own depraved spirit. It is only when you recognize the deadness of your own life that you can transcend into the victory that Christ has achieved for you. you. You might be here this morning and feel like, man, I, I'm like Samson. This is self-induced pain. Every time I've had a second chance, I've screwed it up. But I want you to leave this building today filled with the hope of a good God who is not just good enough to give us a second chance, he's good enough to redeem our first chance. That's the God you serve. So God, one more time, would you remember your people and would you give us strength? We pray these things now in the mighty name of Jesus and all God's people said amen, amen. and amen.